Welcome to the fourth edition of the monthly labor report in which we talk about the latest news on labor actions, imminent and ongoing strikes and contract negotiations taking place nationally and in some cases globally. We'll also probe more deeply into some of the structural economic issues underlying the recent upsurge in militant labor action and organizing that has sent tremors through the normally unyielding pillars of neoliberalism. And as usual, we'll do this with the help of Michael Zweig, economist, labor historian, professor emeritus in economics, and founding director of the Center for the Study of Working Class Life at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Michael is an activist and author of numerous books and articles, including his just-released book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism published by PM Press. Michael is also the recipient of awards for his writing and documentary film production from the Working Class Studies Association. Great to have you here again, Michael. Thank you. It's good always to be with you and to be with WPKN. Indeed. Well, why don't we begin, as usual, by reviewing any news on the labor front, perhaps revisiting the United Auto Workers contract now approved, I think, by the membership. That's right. All the way across uh, all three, uh, GM, Ford, and Stellantis. There were some shops and some uh, plants that uh, turned it down, mainly because there were issues about the retiree benefits that uh, some older workers felt were not adequately addressed. But overall, the contract uh, went through all the way across. And so it's, it's really counts as quite a success. All right. Any other developments going on nationally or globally that we should? Well, I think that it's interesting and important to point out that inside the labor movement, there are moves to uh, call for a ceasefire in Gaza and conflict with Israel and Hamas. And uh, it is, of course, a contentious question, but there are unions and there are labor organizations around the country that are taking up this call for a ceasefire. In particular, uh, United Electrical Workers, um, Radio and Machine Workers Union, UE, and also United Food and Commercial Workers Local 3000, which is out in Washington State, uh, have been circulating a statement and a petition. uh, And those are signs that there are challenges to the solidly pro-America, pro-Israel position inside the labor movement, although it's a source of, uh, as it is anywhere in the country, of uh, substantial controversy. Mm, That's really interesting and encouraging that that debate is happening. So I wonder if you might reflect a little bit on the change in organized labor with regard to some of these international political issues and domestic issues as well. Well, even in the Vietnam War era, there were unions that uh, opposed the war very early on. Uh, 1199, Healthcare Workers Union, Uh, United Electrical Workers, again, uh, and other uh, unions did very early on uh, oppose the war. And then there were latecomers like the UAW, which didn't oppose the war until 1968, and others came along after that. So I think that, and I think the uh, labor movement had a record there that was slow on the uptake, but it wasn't completely absent from the anti-war movement from the beginning, particularly more left-led Uh, unions, not surprisingly. Mm -hmm. And I think that it 
uh, is interesting that when we developed the uh, uh, U.S. labor against the war, we found a lot of locals in 2002, 2003, 2004, locals that were ready to sign on to an anti-war position within the labor movement because they themselves had been Vietnam War veterans or veterans of the anti-war movement inside the labor movement and then came to positions of authority. They were local presidents. They were high-level union officers, and they had influence to be able to get the labor movement much more early on opposing an American intervention. And we did get the AFL-CIO in 2005 for the first time in its history to oppose uh, an ongoing U.S. war when they passed a resolution calling for the rapid withdrawal of all forces from uh, U.S. forces from Iraq. So that's one thing. Another thing I'd like to point out about the Vietnam era is there is this image of construction workers coming and beating up anti-war demonstrators down on Wall Street. And that did happen. But that is often taken to mean that the, the working class people basically supported the war. And I don't think that that's really right. I think that over time, there was a very substantial opposition to the war in Vietnam in the working class, more so than among the leadership of the unions. And I think that there uh, we can learn a lot from Penny Lewis's book, Hard Hats and Hippies and Hard Hats, I think it's called, which is a wonderful exploration of that era and uh, the story of those construction workers and the limitations that that story represents in the presentation of the labor movement and the anti-work of the 1960s and 70s. Well, I will certainly try to grab that book, I think. But the question of you use the word working class and the working class is not all members of unions. So that's a more generic, I guess, reference to people who may have different interests than, as you said, the leadership of their unions, who at the, in that era, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they were, you know, George Meany and leadership that had basically really tried to step away from any association with the left wing of the labor movement that had existed, you know, up until the end of World War II. Well, I and, think that's right. And what you had was a purging of the left in the labor movement in the McCarthy period in the late 40s, 50s, 60s. <clears throat> and uh, the AFL-CIO, American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations, AFL-CIO, that was the umbrella organization of unions. And it wasn't called some, in some circles the AFL-CIO, it was called in some circles the AFL-CIA, because <laughs> it cooperated so closely with American foreign uh, interventions in other countries to destroy the left, and that included with labor representatives in these uh, embassies and missions around the world, U.S. Uh, labor participating in the destruction of the left and the labor movement in other countries, in Italy and in Greece and uh, el elsewhere in France. So I think that the leadership, the top leadership of the labor movement in this country in the 50s and 60s was very much in the anti-communist mode. And so in the Vietnam era, you know, we were fighting the communists. And uh, that was the idea that had traction in the leadership and uh, in the membership. But the membership was much more opposed to the war than its leadership. And then, of course, as you say, that membership is only part of the overall labor move of the overall working class. And so you're right that we have to look further. And that actually uh, Penny Lewis does that in her book. She looks beyond just the organized labor movement. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I just wanted to mention, I had the opportunity to watch something on 
cable television over the holiday. And it was, I guess, a rebroadcast of a podcast, which is called Why Is This Happening? It's generally hosted by Chris Hayes, one of the MSNBC hosts. I think he's one of the best on their roster. But he did this extended interview, a two-hour program with Rachel Maddow. And they were talking about the history of fascism in the United States and the threat it poses in this present moment. It was a two-hour program, and I was amazed that in that entire presentation, the word capitalism was not mentioned once. In fact, the only reference to the economy at all was regarding Henry Ford, which really focused mostly on his infamous anti-Semitism and his sympathy and attraction to Hitler, which I, I guess in their presentation, it turned out that that attraction was mutual. But I thought that what we might do is to explore the possible nexus between capitalism and fascism, um, since this connection is, if there is one, is not at all, never mentioned in all the very frequent mentions of the F word that are happening now on mainstream media. But it might be good for us to seek a definition of fascism that goes beyond the current definition, which I think is in play now, which is basically to equate it with authoritarianism, you know, racism and violent repression of ethnic minorities. The economic link between fascism and capitalism is glaringly absent from all these, as I said, frequent mentions that occur in the mainstream media. But I think it would be interesting for us to address the question, is there an economic component to fascism? And if so, in what ways does that link it to capitalism? People have suppressed and fought one another uh, by tribe and by ethnicity for as long as we know human history. So just saying that fascism is that, uh, where some people are suppressing other people and taking away their rights, doesn't really help us very much because it's just too abstract and too generic. And as you're going for in your question, takes it away from the particulars of the society that we are living in, which is a capitalist society. So if we look at fascism as a part of a capitalist society, when the capitalist class needs or feels itself threatened and feels itself in need of suppressing what it sees as its threat. And usually, and if we look in the 1930s, the rise of fascism, it's, it, it's an attempt by the corporate elite, by the top leaders of the capitalist class to suppress opposition, and in particular, uh, labor opposition, in particular, the rise in the power and the, and the effectiveness of working class organization. Now, fascism can come from a variety of different directions, and it always is associated with racism. It's always associated with a divide and conquer technique to make certain parts of the working class feel like they really are great because they're associated with the rulers, and they can get power from the power of the rulers, and that power involves suppressing other people, neighbors. They could be Jews, they could be Black people, they could be people from another country. But behind all of those techniques of fascism, 
is the basic function of it, which is to enforce capitalist rule when it is seriously threatened and especially threatened by labor. So what we see, you know, in uh, Germany and in Japan in the 30s and 40s is not exactly what we see here in the United States. But I think when President or former President Trump starts talking about vermin and the people in this country who are opposing him are vermin, that uh, he's out for retribution. And incidentally, when he says retribution, he identifies himself. He says, they're after me because they're after you. And the you are white people. That's absolutely plain and simple. So when Trump talks about uh, getting retribution, when he talks about there's an enemy within the country, it's not just foreign enemies, it's really inside the country, that starts to get very dangerous. I think we need to take that very seriously. He's talking about us. He's talking about you, Richard, and me, and the people who are listening to this program, and the people who support WPKN and progressive radio and progressive politics around the country. These sections of the corporate elite are doubling down on that. Now, it does seem to me that we don't have enough threat in this country in a sense, to justify fascism from the point of view of the whole ruling class in this country. I think there's a lot of people who have a lot of money and authority and power in this country who are very uneasy with Trump and very uneasy with all this talk about vermin and all this talk about we have to uh, crush uh, the enemy within. And it really remains to be seen how this is really going to play out, this threat of fascism in the United States. And uh, that's, I think, a very high item on the political agenda and also on the agenda of, of the labor movement, increasingly as this comes to be a, a question. And I think we'll see in the labor movement, we are already seeing some initial anti-fascist movements that are developing to kind of call this out and call it out actually in connection with certain sections of the ruling class that are also uncomfortable with it and don't feel that it's necessary at this time. Well, that's interesting. So in other words, what you're saying, I think, is that like I think in Nazi Germany, for example, initially the large, powerful industrialists supported Hitler and his movement because he was fighting against, you know, the working class, although he did make an appeal, you know, the sort of populist appeal to the working class. He basically was persecuting uh, unionists, union leaders, trying to combat the uh, labor unions and so there was, I think, a, a natural support for Hitler and his movement by the huge industrialists during the, the period preceding the full control of the Nazi party. So I think what you're saying is that the fascist movement, which does basically operate as an authoritarian movement, can be a tool of the ruling class in certain circumstances. Well, I think, you know, in Hitler's example, there were significant sections of the German industrial elite that supported him, gave him money, met with him, and thought that he was just a buffoon and that they could control him and he wasn't really very smart. And they were really very clever and very smart themselves because they built all these big industries. And so they could control Hitler, but they were wrong. They couldn't. And he, he sort of got away from them and became, an, in, in a way, <clears throat> an independent political force because he controlled this tremendously repressive apparatus 
that would strike out at anybody who contradicted him of any class, of any stripe. And I think that people uh, in this country, uh, in, the, in the ruling class, are thinking about that when they think about how close they want to come to Trump and how difficult it is for Trump to get money and to raise money and to get real support anymore from the sections of the ruling class that he had in 2016 and then going into 2020. Now, it is true that Hitler had a mass base and a working class base. And don't forget Nazi, we, uh, that's a shorthand for national socialist. Hitler had to call himself a socialist. That gives you an idea of how strong the socialist sentiment was in the working class. So he presented himself as a socialist, as, a, as somebody of the working man. He was just a national socialist. And while, while we don't have socialism in this country to the degree that Trump wants to call himself a national socialist, he's just happy to call himself an American. America first, the real Americans. So of course, that doesn't include black people. It doesn't include immigrants. It doesn't include all kinds of people he doesn't like. But that's his gambit, is this America first and I think that what we're seeing is a continuation of the echoes of the New Deal and of the reforms of the New Deal, which really did give workers a better life, really did advance in the civil rights movement in the 40s, 50s, 60s, did advance the condition of African-Americans, it did advance the conditions of women in the country, at least six significant sections of them. And what we're seeing since, you know, we've talked about this Powell Memorandum before on this program, Lewis Powell back in 1971 saying, wait a second, this is terrible. We have to mobilize our whole class. The whole system has to be defended. And they're doing that still to this day. That process of turning back every gain, every benefit that working people got, every benefit that minorities or so-called people who aren't true Americans, every benefit that they got has to be turned back. Every regulation has to be reversed. Every limitation on capital has to be destroyed. And they're still at it because we still have Social Security. We still have workmen's compensation. We still have a Voting Rights Act such as it can be enforced. We have all these things in place that a significant section of the ruling class still wants to get rid of. They're still working at it. And Trump is or was their political wedge. And the fact that he could, you know, mobilize the working class or sections of the working class with his charisma, so-called charisma, was very convenient. And now there are people are saying, oh, my God, what can we do without Trump? Who could be Trump without Trump? Trump without his baggage. And, of course, the trick is, the policy is very anti-working class. The policy is very racist. The policy is very anti-gay. It's very anti-women. It's very patriarchal. So if you just go out and say, this is what we want to do, people won't vote for you. So you have to find some way to demagogue your way in. Trump is very good at that. And people are looking at Ron DeSantis and saying, ah, he can't really do it. People are looking at the, you know, Christie and saying, ah, he, he's not the guy. So they're looking around, but that basic agenda that capital has of destroying and crushing any progressive movement or any progressive result from the last 60 years, that's still very much alive. And the desire to repress people in the drive to turn that all back, that is what the debate is going on now in the ruling class and I think in the labor movement 
we have to really be very clear that we're living in a very dangerous moment here, but it is a continuation of this long-term pressure by the corporate elite in this country to turn around all the gains that we've seen in the last 70 years and 80 years, 90 years now. And they're really working at it hmm. where capitalism comes into the picture. And I think it's fortuitous that this rebirth of labor militancy is coming at this moment where there is the potential that, you know, there's this mass movement. It could be a mass movement that could defend against the further erosion of the benefits and gains that were made in the New Deal and have been attacked with rabid energy beginning in the early 70s. You know, I wanted to conclude our conversation today by talking a little bit about something from your recent book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. I've been reading it and enjoying it, and I came across a passage that I thought might have some tie-in to the conversation we just had about fascism. Let me read the passage, and then we can see if, if you think there is some connection to the, to the question of how demagogues can take advantage of the divisions created by capitalism. So here's the passage. By stripping each person of their social relationships, the individualism of capitalism has destroyed the individual's integration into the social networks of meaning that in earlier societies were provided by belonging to a tribe or local community, religion, or guild. So I don't know if you want to just explicate that passage a bit and then see if, if you think there's some tie into the, the way that somebody like Trump, with all his comedic and carnival barker skills, could exploit this alienation that, that occurred and continues to occur in our society. In earlier societies, before capitalism came along and really developed, people lived very local lives. They were in their tribe, in their territory, perhaps in their village, and uh, or on their land. And it was a community which was at once very narrow, but it also was one that placed one, each individual, in the context of that community so that people had a social existence that really permeated everything in their lives. And, you know, human beings, we're, we're animals, we're mammals, and we are the kind of mammal that's social. Some mammals aren't. Some mammals are solitary. Uh, others are uh, social and communal, and we're a social and communal animal. So having that kind of embracing community was something that capitalism basically destroyed. And you <clears throat> became just an individual input to the capitalist profit and production system, you were expendable. You Nobody paid attention to you as a, as a human being. From the point of view of the capitalist, you were just somebody who could you know, make them money. And there was no sense of, of community or no sense of mutual obligation or mutual trust or mutual regard. And so that really has had, a, I think, a, a very bad effect on people's lives and people's mental states to be stripped away from those kinds of communities. And people look for uh, communities in volunteer work and in other op activities. But 
we have so much pressure on our lives just to get by with two jobs, with working overtime, with having your, your you know, taking care of kids, everything. It's hard to find those social engagements. And so along comes Trump and says, guess what? You're an American. And guess what? You should be proud of that because all these other people are trying to take away your uh, freedoms and take away your rights. So you, we have to all get together to fight this uh, enemy. And the enemy is right next door to you, uh, list, listening to WPKN. That, in, in a world in which people are just isolated, that message can be attractive. And I think that uh, there is a tendency then to blame you know, working people to blame the poor, blame people, ordinary people for Trump or for Trumpism. And there, I think that's a mistake because whatever is leading people into finding Trump's message and that message of fascism attractive, those conditions are created by the capitalist system in which we live. And so in a certain way, they grow out of the society that we're in. They don't grow out of the individual people who are behaving in a particular way or voting in a particular way, although people have their own agency too and, and can resist those and try to create other kinds of uh, ways of finding community in social movements or in unions or in uh, the fire department as a volunteer or wherever you can find it. So I think that what we're trying to do in the labor movement and the poor people's campaign and national call for moral revival is to find other forms of community, other ways in which people can be together, find commonality, find common purpose, but take that in a progressive direction, take that in a direction that alleviates suffering and not creates more, take it in a, in a direction that enhances the power of working people, not declining and not not reducing it so those are the kinds of considerations i think that grow out of that question of individualism and the way in which it breaks down community you know one thing that i have in the book about individualism you know we have this idea of in this country and in capitalism more generally around the world that everybody has to look out for themselves it's me, myself, and I, and nobody else is my responsibility, and I'm nobody else's responsibility. So I'm not looking for a handout. I'll just take care of myself. Thank you very much. But don't come to me with your problems, because I got enough problems of my own. That is a very widespread sentiment, and it reflects the reality of lives of a whole lot of people. But that sense of, I'm just into it for myself, leads to a very dysfunctional society and very damaged people and personal relationships. And that's the values that me, myself, and I is the value of capitalism. The values that working people have, the actual lived experience of working people is not that. It's looking after each other, mutual aid, taking care of one another in the family and in the community, volunteering in the Boy Scouts or the National Guard ROTC, Junior ROTC, all kinds of ways that people find to volunteer that creates community outside of their own immediate interest. And I think that for me, the question of self-interest, yes, that's our first obligation is to look after ourselves, but it doesn't stop there. We look after ourselves in order to look after other people. We look after ourselves so that we have the capacity to help other people and to create a better society for everybody. 
that's the way in which the individualism for a social purpose seems to me to be what challenges the individualism of capitalism. Yeah, and you have that really nice metaphor in, in the book of somebody uh, on an airplane when the, the oxygen mask drops down. You don't turn to help your neighbor until you get the mask on yourself, but allowing you to breathe and actually continue to get oxygen into your blood allows you to help the guy sitting next to you. And so it's that process of that's right making sure you have the capacity to help others. And that that's the individualism that is in fact socially productive and actually integrative as opposed that's to right atomizing. That's right. Exactly right. So it's a very clear image that you do present there. Well, Michael, it's been a, a good conversation as usual, and these labor reports will continue month to month and generally right around the beginning of each month. We're actually recording this, pre-recording this one because you're going on the road on a, a book tour. And uh, where are you going on that tour? Well, uh, on uh, November 28th, I'm going to be in Seattle at Elliott Bay Bookstore. Then on the 1st of December, I'm going to be at Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon. Then on the 3rd of December, I'm going to be down in San Francisco at the Howard Zinn Book Fair in down in the Mission District. I invite people to come to any of these events. Then I'm going to be back in New York for a couple of days, and then I'm going down to Baltimore. I'm going to be at Red Emma's in Baltimore, and then at Busboys and Poets uh, on the 10th of December in Tacoma, their Tacoma store in D.C. And uh, that's it for this year. And then I'm going to pick up again in uh, spring with another tour from Maine across to Buffalo and be out in the Midwest. So the idea is just to get the word around about this book. I didn't write it just to have a line on my resume or another book on the shelf uh, that I could uh, smile every time I went past it. It's a, it's, it's a resource. It's an organizing resource. It's a resource for education, political education in the context of social movements. And that's why I wrote it. And that's who it's for. And that's why I'm going around talking to. Wonderful. Well, Michael, thank you so much and uh, safe journey and good luck on that. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. This has been the Monthly Labor Report coming to you on WPKN, and it will be posted, as usual, on the Between the Lines website, and that is btlonline.org. My name is Richard Hill. Thanks so much for joining us.